we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. True Crime Brewery contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Medical information is opinion based on facts of a crime and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment. Listener discretion is advised. I will always trust my inner If it makes me feel uncomfortable or nervous, I will say no. I will say no. I will love myself enough to ask for help. I am strong, smart, and trust my instincts. I will call someone I trust when I am in trouble. I will always carry my cell phone. I will never let a friend leave an event. I will check on friends when I haven't heard from them. I will always use the buddy system. I we will help. help save we will not be the statistics. We will help save the next girl. Welcome to True Crime Brewery. I'm Jill. And I'm Dick. Today's show is sponsored by Casper. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com forward slash brewery and using brewery at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. When UVA student Hannah Graham disappeared from a Charlottesville mall in 2014, authorities and volunteers began a massive search. Joining the search were the parents of Morgan Harrington. Morgan had disappeared five years earlier. At the time, the Harringtons didn't realize that solving Hannah's case would lead them to the man who had killed their daughter Morgan. Charlottesville is a historic city, and home to the prestigious University of Virginia. 18-year-old Hannah Graham was a second-year student when she went missing in September of 2014. Her disappearance mobilized the police and the community. She'd gone out with friends to dinner and a couple of parties. At 1 a.m., she sent a text to a friend saying that she was lost. She was never seen again, except in surveillance footage, some of it with her killer walking right beside her. As the investigation into Hannah's disappearance unfolded, it became clear that Hannah and Morgan had been killed by the same man. Other missing women and at least one rape victim are also considered as possible targets of the same predator. Join us at The Quiet End today for a discussion of the missing and murdered young women victimized by convicted murderer Jesse Matthew. This story covers years of searching, 
the unimaginable pain of the victim's parents, the manhunt for the killer, and the efforts of Morgan Harrington's mother, along with thousands of volunteers, to help save the next girl. To start us off, Dick has a beer review with a beer from, I'm guessing, Virginia? What a good guess. All right. Yes, I have a beer called Master of Karate. Nice. Yeah, people keep coming up with just crazy-ass names. I know, it's kind of like the crazier the better. I think so. So Master of Karate is brewed by Aslan Beer Company in Herndon, Virginia. It's a double IPA and has 8.4% alcohol by volume. So it's another one of these newfangled IPAs. It's more fruit-forward. It's a hazy pale orange color with a pretty thick white head. Very fruity aroma, both tropical fruit and citrus fruit. Taste of pineapple, mostly. Some orange. Maybe some uh, papaya, mango, but mostly pineapple and orange. It's a sweet beer with a subdued bitterness, so you'd probably like it. Sounds pretty good. It's a good beer. Okay, let's open it up and head down to the quiet end. Okay. So not too many people here at the quiet end today. No, well, it's the middle of April, and we got snow this morning. It's still winter up here. Yeah. The calendar might say spring. The calendar lies. Today it's like 30 degrees, and we've had snow and sleet and freezing rain. It just sucks. That's why I can't wait to go to Nashville. That's right. Yeah. It's got to be nicer weather. Absolutely. All right, let's... So we'll just sit here and be by ourselves. Yeah, and tell a story, talk it over. All right. All right. Lead us off. Virginia Tech student Morgan Harrington was last seen at a Metallica concert at the John Paul Jones Arena at the University of Virginia. She'd been so excited about attending the concert that it was practically all she talked about for days. The tickets for the October 17, 2009 concert had been pinned on the family's refrigerator door for months. It was Saturday when 20-year-old Morgan drove from her parents' home in Roanoke to the UVA campus arena to see one of her favorite bands. She'd come to spend the weekend with her parents. This was the last time her mother, Jill, and father, Dan, saw Morgan. So Sunday morning, around 11 o'clock, Dan received a call from the University of Virginia police. The police told Dan that Morgan's purse had been found in a parking lot on the UVA campus. So that's not a good sign. No. And the Harringtons pretty much immediately knew that something terrible had happened to their daughter. So Morgan, very beautiful young lady, was a lot of fun. She was artistic and loved music, which was very different from her math and science-oriented parents. I think they're a doctor and a nurse. Yes, they are. Morgan was a strong student who graduated from high school early with a 3.93 GPA and was granted early admission to Virginia Tech in 2007. Well, all the police knew at first was that Morgan had left her friends at the concert and then something had happened to her. She had left to go to the restroom, and a witness saw her there with an injury. She was bleeding from somewhere on her face. It seemed that Morgan had fallen somewhere between her seat and the restrooms. Then she left the building, and she wasn't allowed back in. So do you think she might have been drinking or something? They think so, yes. I mean, uh, she sounds like she fell on her way to the restroom, sustained an injury. Mm -hmm. And then it sounds like she got a little disoriented. And left the building. Yes, it does. 
During the opening act's performance, Harrington told friends that she was going to the restroom, and when she didn't return, they called her cell phone at 8.48 p.m., and she told them that she was locked out of the arena because of its no-re-entry policy, adding that she would find a way home and they shouldn't worry about her. Yeah, so it's okay, right? No. No? Do you think that's okay? At this point, it is. Well, I'm just saying, when I was a younger woman... If I was out with my friends and something like this happened, we don't let we don't let one of them wander off on their own, yeah. especially if they've been drinking. Right, but she told her friends, "Don't worry." Yeah, but her friends probably one of them should have worried and met her outside and gone home with her. Yeah, probably. Cause... Or at least called a parent or somebody they knew to come get her. Yeah. Then, then again, they probably all had been drinking, and they, their friend says, "Yeah, I'm okay. Don't worry. I'll get home." So they said, "Sure." Well, this is all at the center of the movement that Morgan's mother started about help right. save the next girl. And that's what should be taken. That's that's what should be taken to heart. Right. That's why I bring it up. Yes. Because I think that the whole idea of having a buddy system and looking out for each other is important. Absolutely. And if there's something to be learned from these tragedies, that's it. Now, there were reports that Morgan had been hitchhiking. She was seen hitchhiking on a bridge or walking on a bridge. And she was reported to be confused and seemed to be looking for a way to get home. So she was last seen on the bridge, alone, on foot, and probably injured. So she may have decided to find her own way to her friend's apartment because she's left the arena. She's walking somewhere. Right. She isn't allowed to go back in anyway. Now, Morgan's parents believe that Morgan was impaired by alcohol or drugs. And she may have been picked up by someone and felt that she was safe with him. Now, on that evening of October 17th, the temperature in Charlottesville hovered around freezing. Morgan's jacket was back inside the arena with her friends. In one of its pockets was her ticket stub. Uh, Later on, several groups of students had reported noticing her, appearing cold, aimless, and confused. Now, I don't know why none of these people did anything about it, helped her out. Right. I mean, you're with some people, you see this person by yourself? Yeah. Who's probably impaired? Mm-hmm. Uh, confused? You're yeah. not going to say, can I help you? So why didn't some other young woman help her? Why didn't anybody? Yes. Well, I can see that maybe a guy wouldn't want to approach her because maybe she wouldn't want to accept a ride or help from a guy, which would be wise probably if she didn't know him. But why couldn't another woman, another student, help her? Yeah. Or a couple people. I yeah. mean, it sounds like there are groups of people. Sure, there were. I mean, it's a college campus. Yeah. Right. But we'll find out that her murderer was actually a taxi driver. So she may have felt perfectly safe getting in a taxi to go home, which is reasonable. I, I think that's probably the likely scenario. Yeah. Well, within days, Morgan's story was very big news. Volunteers and police began an extensive search of the area. Over 2,000 people searched for Morgan that first week. Now her parents held press conferences and gave interviews. Flyers were distributed, but they were also posted on social media. Metallica's lead singer, can't remember his name, but he recorded a video asking for people to come forward with any information on Morgan's case. Her purse, containing her ID and cell phone, with the battery removed, had been found in the RV lot at UVA's Lanigan Athletic Field. So that's a terrible sign as well. It sure is. Why did someone take a battery out of her phone? Right. 
So on January 26, 2010, Morgan had been missing for 101 days. And on that day, Dan Harrington received a mid-morning phone call from a reporter in Charlottesville who asked, do you have a statement to make regarding the discovery of Morgan's remains today? Yeah, this is how Dan learned that his daughter was dead. I can't even begin to comprehend how that would feel. It's just terrible. I don't know why this reporter would even do that without knowing if he had been notified. Yes, this is like the second case we've done in a row or something where the people found out from newspaper reporters instead of the police, the authorities. Right. It's just inexcusable. I think so. Morgan's remains were discovered about 10 miles from the arena by a farmer in a remote area at least one and a half miles from road access. Although investigators didn't release information about her death, her parents confirmed that it had been a very violent death and that bones had been broken. Her mother would later confirm that her daughter had been raped. This was an incredibly violent crime. There was an absolute monster of a human being still free and out there to inflict pain and loss to others. So parents and young women were absolutely terrified at this point. I can only imagine. Now, in April 2010, forensic tests confirmed that a Pantera t-shirt, which had been found in November of 2009 outside of an apartment building, about a mile and a half from the arena, was in fact the shirt that Morgan had been wearing on the night she went missing. Now, the shirt had been found spread out on the top of a bush, almost like a trophy, in the middle of the college campus. Morgan's DNA was found on the t-shirt, but there was also unknown DNA. And this unknown DNA matched foreign DNA that had been found in evidence in a 2005 rape case that was 100 miles away. So this is kind of your blind hit. It is, yes. It really is. In the fall of 2005, a man attacked, beat, and sexually assaulted a young woman in Fairfax, Virginia. This woman was walking home from her local supermarket after 8.30 in the evening. Now she felt someone was behind her and confronted him, asking if she could help him. Uh, he said he was waiting for a friend. Yeah, I don't know what else you could do at this point. You're walking along by yourself, yeah. and you notice someone that's probably following you. I mean, what do you do? Do you panic and run? Do you try and act cool? I think she was very brave to turn around and confront him, thinking maybe that would make him back off. Yeah, I think that's not a bad move. No. But then I don't know. I don't think you can outrun him. Maybe you could. Yeah, so she continued moving toward her house, soon heard footsteps running up behind her. Uh, the rapist grabbed her and carried her to a field where he beat her and raped her. So this was an incredibly violent crime that could have ended up as a murder. It most likely would have, except for the fact that a guy pulled his truck into the parking lot. Yeah, that was just pure luck. So this guy was named Mark Castro. He pulled his truck into the parking lot that was facing the field where the attack was happening. When he pulled in, the lights from his car shone into the area, and those lights probably saved that woman's life. The suspect looked up toward the parking lot and took off running. And then Mark Castro saw the woman standing in the headlights, and he would describe her as nearly beaten to death, so covered in blood and mud, barely able to walk, in really terrible shape. She told Mark Castro that there was a guy who had taken off into the woods, and he actually went out there. I don't know how wise that was, but he said he went out there and yelled at the guy. 
which, you know, that isn't very smart, because what if the guy had a gun and he could have shot both of them at that point? He could have, but the guy was gone. He had already taken off, so he'd saved this woman's life. He did. And she was taken to the hospital in an ambulance. And she had scratched him, so there was DNA under her fingernails. And then the next day she described her attacker to a sketch artist. So the rapist and Morgan's murderer, because we've matched DNA, yes. was approximately six foot two inches tall and 200 pounds. He was African-American with short hair, a mustache, and a beard. So the police had a description of the guy with a sketch and DNA, but they had no idea who he was. That's right. And it was going to take a while. It's going to take a while to find him, and it would turn out that he was kind of an unlikely suspect. It does. Yeah. But I think it really isn't until we get to surveillance footage that we realize that that's really how they found out who he was. Yeah. Because he was kind of distinctive looking. He was, once once they had him. But, you know, if, if it just had ended with Morgan and the rape, they could still be looking for this guy. Absolutely. They didn't have much on him. And then he's right there on camera when Hannah Graham disappears. Mm -hmm. And things proceeded more quickly from that point. I'm really concerned about how these young women were off on their own like this at night. Um, I just feel like there should be a buddy system. There's just kind of an understanding, I would think, between girls, young women, about looking out for each other. I mean, I just could tell you numerous stories of being out with girlfriends at a bar and, you know, one of them has too much to drink and wants to go home with someone or wants to be left behind when you're going home. You just don't let that happen. You say, no, you're coming with me. Yeah, you do. You do. I think though the reality is that, particularly in social settings, even the best intentions sometimes get overlooked. What do you mean by that? People have been drinking, and their judgment gets impaired a little bit. And your your friend, who you're supposed to be looking out for, goes off with a guy. Right. I mean, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, maybe that's another good reason to have a designated driver. Not only a designated driver, but a designated sensible person in your group. Yeah. You know, well, someone the, to make the right decisions. That's why people need to keep hammering on Save the Next Girl. Yeah. And make sure that as much as you can be sure that this type of stuff doesn't happen. Yeah, I think it's a, a great movement. They actually start with girls in elementary school and also throw in things like having a feeling of self-respect, self-worth, expectations to be treated a certain way, ways to defend your Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Yourself, 
but mostly things about sticking together, the buddy system. Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, before we get into Hannah Graham's case, let's take a short break. You spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Casper has your back, literally, and your front and your side, whichever way you like to sleep. Casper products are specifically designed to mimic human curves, providing supportive comfort for all sizes and shapes of bodies. I remember when we got our Casper mattress like it was yesterday. It came in a bewilderingly small box right to our front door. We've been sleeping better ever since. We love it so much. We really do. We sent one to our son's college apartment, and he was thrilled. He loves it. So the Casper not only gives you the right amount of sink and bounce, it is also breathable and regulates your body temperature, so it helps keep you cool throughout the night. They are all about sleep experience and offer other products like pillows and sheets so that you can ensure an overall better sleeping experience. Casper is affordable. They have free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. And you can be sure of this purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com forward slash brewery and using brewery at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. The support for today's show also comes from Freshly. If you're tired of spending hours preparing dinner and trying to master multi-step meal kits, Freshly is the new way to get dinner on the table in virtually no time. Their chefs cook and deliver delicious, freshly prepared meals so you can eat healthier without any of the work. Each meal is made to order just for you. And with a rotating weekly menu of more than 30 options, there's always something new to try. Better yet, freshly chefs and nutritionists make sure that every meal is all natural, nutritious, and made with only high-quality ingredients. So you can come home late from a long day at work and have a delicious chef-cooked meal waiting for you. Jill and I recently tried the Southwest Veggie Bowl. We came away really impressed with its quality. It's got great grains like lentils and quinoa, along with corn, black beans, and sweet potatoes. Everything we like. It's a super filling dish and has a nice little spicy kick to it. Yeah, it's really the perfect portion. It's not huge, but it's definitely substantial. It is. Freshly makes it easy for you when you just don't want to cook. Order Freshly today and see what it's like to put zero effort into making dinner. Go to Freshly.com forward slash brewery to get $20 off your first six dinners. That's $20 off plus free shipping at Freshly.com forward slash brewery. And last but not least, support for today's show also comes from Grove Collaborative. Grove Collaborative makes it easy to discover amazing natural home and personal care products. Grove selects only the best non-toxic products, so you can shop with confidence, knowing that everything on their site is good for you, your family, and the planet. I love how Grove offers us the non-toxic products we love without having to make any commitments. With price matching, free shipping, and a 100% happiness guarantee. With their own safe, effective, and affordable Grove flagship products, as well as amazing brands like Mrs. Myers, Method, 7th Generation, Tom's, and Real Simple, Grove collects and distributes premium quality products that are all natural, beautiful, and sustainable. We've been trying to make the switch to all safe, non-toxic products for quite some time, and Grove helps us accomplish that goal. We've really expanded what we've been using. 
Yeah, we find that the seventh generation brand dish detergent is really great. We've been using that. We switched, yep. And the method shower cleaner, because uh, the one shower we have is all glass, and that works just amazingly well. And it, it smells really fresh and good. Tom's Toothpaste, well, that's a main company. We've used Tom's forever. Grove has a much wider array of non-toxic personal and household care products than other stores or sites, giving you more healthy options. And Grove guides are always available to answer your questions. Grove lets you set a schedule for things you use all the time so you never run out. Now, True Crime Brewery listeners are getting a unique offer and bonus gift from Grove. Go to grove.co forward slash brewery, and you'll receive a $30 Mrs. Myers gift set plus a bonus gift and a two-month VIP membership for free with your order of $20 or more. Now, remember, that's grove.co, not grove.com slash brewery. Grove makes it easy to have a happy, healthy home. So, 2014, 18-year-old Hannah Graham disappeared from a Charlottesville mall. She was a second-year University of Virginia student who was making straight A's. Smart kid, musically gifted, with a dry wit. Also very athletic, almost six feet tall. She stood out among the other girls on the softball team. Hannah is beyond precious to us, John and Susan Graham said in a statement, released shortly after she went missing. We are truly devastated by her disappearance. It's totally out of character for us not to have heard from her, and we fear foul play. I think in both of these cases, the parents knew pretty early on that this was really bad. Well, they know their kids. Yeah, these were kids that kept in touch. This is not stuff that they would do. Right. Holding a stuffed bunny named Bibi... That was his daughter's favorite plush toy and guardian angel. John Graham pleaded for someone to come forward with any information on Hannah, who he said really loved helping people. So that would kind of make her vulnerable. Maybe a little more trusting than she should have been, right? Yeah, yeah. Sad that that's the way the world is. On the evening of September 12th, she was seen at a party before friends saw her at an apartment complex a couple of blocks away from the party. Now, that was shortly before midnight. About 12.45 a.m. on September 13th, a surveillance camera caught her outside of a pub about three-quarters of a mile from the apartment complex. She was unsteady on her feet, possibly intoxicated. A doorman turned her away at the pub. Ten minutes later, she was seen running past a gas station on camera. This was a well-lit area, and no one seemed to be chasing her down the street, so this was really weird. Why was she running down the street? Witnesses would say they saw her five minutes later, about four blocks from that gas station. She was running toward the mall, and witnesses saw her at a restaurant in the area. And that area was known as Downtown Mall, where all the restaurants and shops were, I guess. Yeah. I've never been on that campus. Have you? Yeah, I interviewed there for my pediatric training. This was a long time ago. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm just saying it's probably changed a bit. I'm sure it has, but it's a beautiful setting. Uh, Yeah, it looks like it. Absolutely gorgeous. The surveillance camera at an Italian cafe captured Hannah walking along the mall at about 1 in the morning. Now, it also, at the same time, captured a man walking, making a U-turn, then walking behind Hannah. This was a large African-American man with dreadlocks, wearing light-colored clothing. He was about 20 to 30 yards behind Hannah. Then the last video of Hannah was from a camera at a jewelry store. This footage showed Hannah and the unidentified man walking side by side. And when police enhanced the picture, they could see that his arm was around her waist. 
Now, this was just chilling to see. Isn't it? Isn't it? You see her out. Because you know what the outcome is. You, you know? know it's bad. Yeah. I mean, we don't really know at this point when the police were first watching it, but you see this guy turn around and he seems to be following her. And I think, did we mention that she was kind of stumbling in an earlier one? So she seemed more vulnerable than normal? Yeah. That was mentioned in the, the idea was that she had been drinking. Or right. was impaired a little bit. Right. So you see this girl out impaired on her own, walking around. And then this guy, who nobody who knows her knows him. So right. we know that she's with a stranger. He's not a friend. Right. And he's got his arm around her. It's, it's chilling, really, to see. I, don't, I just don't think I can overstate that. You can't. Okay. <laughs> now, there wasn't any video at Hannah's last known stop. Witnesses saw Hannah at a place called the Tempo Bar, having drinks with the same unidentified man. Now, who was serving her if she was that impaired? I mean, don't we feel like she was very impaired? Or was she just the kind person that would have drinks with this guy? Yeah, I, well, I think she was a little impaired. I mean, you don't she, think she was out of her mind impaired? No, but she sounded like she was impaired enough because the doorman turned her away at another pub earlier. Right, right. But then she'd been running. I don't know, maybe she sobered up a little bit. Yeah, what was the running all about? Don't know. I mean, that almost makes me think like she was on some kind of party drug or something and freaking out a bit because she was dressed up. She wasn't in sporty clothing. No, she wasn't. And this was a well-lit area running down the street. And if no one was after her, I don't know. You know, plus she said she was lost, right? Yeah, she had texted some friends. A little after 1 a.m., I think that was, saying she was lost and trying to find a party. Right. Yeah, and then she and the man were seen having drinks at the Tempo bar between 1.30 and 2. And police are looking at those pictures and, and talking to friends that had seen her at the bar, or people had seen her at the bar. And they felt that she was under the influence of alcohol and maybe a little more vulnerable due to that. Absolutely, yes, I could see that. And this unidentified man in the surveillance footage is the uh, primary suspect. Yes. Now, Hannah's disappearance made people in the community think of Morgan's disappearance and murder that happened about five years earlier. The largest search in Virginia's history was launched for Hannah. Hundreds of volunteers showed up and that included Morgan Harrington's mother, Jill. On day six of Hannah's disappearance, police got a tip that helped them identify the man in the surveillance videos. So it had taken a few days. And they went ahead and searched his apartment and car. So this man was Jesse Matthew, and his name was leaked to the media. Jesse Matthew walked into a police station on his own and said he wanted to get a lawyer, but he was not willing to make a statement or submit to any questioning. So with no real evidence, really nothing to hold him except that he is seen with her, police weren't able to hold him in the station. But then they did put 24-hour surveillance on him, which was wise. Well, they had to, I mean, because they know that's him on the surveillance cameras. Yeah, so he's by far suspect number one. He is. Now, within hours of the surveillance being started, Jesse drove his sister's car from his grandmother's house. He was sped off and somehow was able to elude the police. Now, I've heard different variations on this. One thing I heard is that the police weren't allowed to chase him because they didn't have anything to pull him over for. They had no reason to detain him at that point, so they're not able to chase him. They had to let him drive off. I mean, they were trying to watch him, right? 
but they couldn't, like, turn on their lights and chase him. No, but they lost him. And, I know. And, and, and they're supposed to be putting him on 24-hour surveillance. Well, yes, I'm just wondering if he takes off. That's my question. If he takes off really fast to leave. Well, they, it, can, they can take off after him Can fast. they take off fast when sure. they're just surveilling him? Why not? That doesn't have to be with flashers going. I don't know. That's my question. You think they can? I think if you're going to do 24-hour surveillance, you're going to do 24-hour surveillance. Sure. And, and not say, oh, he's speeding up. <laughs> we should slow down. I know. I'm just saying what I'd heard about as far as the law goes, what they're allowed to do. I mean, yeah. let's just say, what if he wasn't the guy? And they'd gone really like 90 miles an hour chasing him and gotten in an accident and killed an innocent person, or he got killed. Sure. That could be a big liability for the police. I mean, we know that he is the one, but at that point, they don't really know. Although, you they're, think they were probably pretty sure. They're pretty sure. Especially after he takes off. Yeah. And in any event, no matter what the explanation was, the public was pretty pissed off that he had gotten away. Oh, it makes the police look terribly incompetent. Yeah. So now the search is on for both Hannah Graham and Jesse Matthew. They're both missing. So the public was really outraged, and police had a press conference and said they wanted to talk to Jesse Matthew. Just days after he had fled, police did file charges against him for Hannah's abduction with intent to defile. So the search was on for both Hannah and Matthew. The next few days were very tense. The chief of police was very involved, holding press conferences, speaking to the press, Police hoped that someone would come forward with information on his location, of course. Now, he had grown up in Charlottesville. He'd gone to high school there and was working at the university hospital transporting patients. So there were quite a few people who knew him and believed him to be a nice guy, most of them. Yeah. Some people who had known him described him as a gentle giant. He had been a football player who'd been working with kids as a coach. He was mentoring high school students, and he was actually at the football game that Friday before he was seen with Hannah that same day. So from the outside looking at him, he didn't seem suspect. People had actually trusted him with their children. From 2000 to 2002, Jesse attended Liberty University, and he was on the football team there. Off the field, though, information came out that cast Jesse in a negative light. He had been kicked off the team for forcing himself on a female student. The police conducted a criminal investigation into the alleged assault and rape, but no charges were filed. But he did leave the university. So I don't know if he was expelled or told to leave. Yeah. Or he, I mean, he left. I think to, he was asked to leave. But he was kicked off the football team, and I think his main reason to be in college was to play football. And he didn't seem like a great student from what I've seen in his records. But no. So after Liberty University, Jesse attended Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia. He was on the football team there. But again, just after a few months at Christopher Newport, he left due to allegations of another rape. And again, charges were not filed. So this seems to happen with rape a lot. It does. That it happens... More than once before before the guy is arrested. Now, I guess in both of these cases, they didn't feel like they had enough evidence to charge him. I'm not sure. Because they were reported clearly to the campus. They were. Right. But not well, filed maybe, with the police. Maybe the 
victims didn't want to testify? It just seems like a really lost opportunity. There were some lives could have been saved. There was never a determination that he was dangerous because no charges were filed. And after leaving his second college, he returned to Charlottesville, and that's when he was working driving a cab. He had traffic violations and trespassing offenses, but no other arrests. He was actually driving a cab in 2009 when Morgan was abducted and murdered. And that's what led to a lot of speculation that Morgan may have gotten into his cab on the night of the Metallica concert. She was walking around. She couldn't get back into the concert. So it would make sense that she would take a cab. Yeah. I mean, she was going to go to a friend's place, right? Right. And probably not within walking distance. Right, so exactly. So what, what better way to get there? I guess. You know, it makes me think about, are cab drivers safe? How do you know? Well, at least some places you have to have passed a background check. But he would have passed a background Which check. Which he would have passed. Right. Same thing with Uber. I'm kind of skeptical about getting in an Uber on my own at night. I think any of those. Yeah. Yeah. You're still getting in a vehicle with a stranger. Well, the recent trip you took to your niece's shower, and you were going to take an Uber back from the airport because it was going to be late, and I said no. I know. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're such a hero. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but no. No. I mean, even though it was midnight, I would much rather have you in the car with me. Well, I'd much rather be in the car with you, too. Than, than riding home with a cabbie or an Uber driver. Because you just don't really know. You don't. Not to be paranoid. It sounds a little paranoid, but... Well, I think a little healthy paranoia is not a bad thing. <laughs> right. Well, I, do, I have a healthy paranoia, that's for sure. So a week after Hannah went missing, Jesse's still on the run. Wanted poster was released nationwide. Four days after he fled Charlottesville... He was spotted in Galveston, Texas. So that's far away. The other side of the country, pretty much. Almost. 1,300 miles from Charlottesville. A good yeah. distance. Yeah. So a woman named Karen Monk was sitting in the back of her car on the beach, because you can drive cars onto the beach down there. Huh. When she saw a man in a tent a few yards away, and it was Jesse Matthew, came up to her car and glared at her. Karen Monk recognized him, and she was terrified because she'd seen his mugshot on TV, and she knew what he was wanted for. So I think that's kind of amazing that she'd seen his mugshot on TV across the country and recognized him, although he was very distinctive-looking with those dreads. He was pretty distinctive. I'm surprised and, he and didn't the, shave him off. And, and his wanted poster had been published all over the country, so there there was a possibility that it could have been seen by people yeah. from as far away as Texas, Yeah, which well, it was. He was. Now, this woman was pretty brave, though. She stayed at the beach and called the Galveston County Sheriff's Office. And she had to make a few different calls before she got through to someone who would respond to her. So he was actually picked up and arrested right there. Now, he was on his way to Mexico because they found a map of Mexico in his car. So he had a plan to escape. It sounds like. I mean, here he is on the lam from Charlottesville. He's made it to Texas, which, as we know, is right next door to Mexico. Yeah. So it looks like that's where he's heading. 
But it sure took his time, didn't he? Couldn't he have got there quicker if he was really on the run? And why is he hanging out on the beach sleeping? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I think I would have got to Mexico quicker. Well, he could have done it much quicker. Although I don't know how he thought he was going to get through because wouldn't... But he would have a tough time passing through... That's what I'm thinking. Customs. Wouldn't customs have pictures of wanted people? They would. I would think so. Plus, they didn't say anything about if he had a passport or Plus, not. Plus, he'd have to have some form of identification. So even if they didn't have a picture, they'd have his info. But there must be ways to sneak into Mexico on foot. Sure, there's ways to sneak out on foot. Right. So maybe that was the plan. I'm not sure he had a real well-thought-out plan, except that he needed to get out of Charlottesville. Right, right. Well, he was locked up in Galveston for 48 hours, and then they flew him back to Charlottesville. He never did cooperate with the police in answering any questions about Hannah. So the search for Hannah continued. Then, on October 18th, 35 days after Hannah had disappeared, human remains were found behind a home where no one was living. The house was about six miles outside of downtown Charlottesville. It was within a few miles of a home where Jesse Matthew had grown up. The site where Hannah was found was only five miles from the site where Morgan had been found as well. A search warrant was obtained for Matthew's DNA then. I guess the DNA they'd gotten from his apartment wasn't enough or something, because they had gotten some off a cigarette holder or something. Yeah, they, they had some DNA. Yeah. But I think they're just being thorough. No, oh, probably. Want to make sure that this is the guy. So his DNA linked him to the 2005 rape, the 2009 murder of Morgan Harrington, and he was in jail, but refused to speak with police the entire time. So on October 20th, two days after Hannah's remains were found, he was indicted for attempted capital murder, abduction, and sexual assault of a 2005 rape victim. This was the case that they felt had the best evidence for a conviction, so this is the one they were going with first. Sure. Well, they have a, a living person who can testify. Right. I mean, Morgan, had her, her remains hadn't been found for 100 days, mm -hmm. and other than... Jesse's DNA on her shirt. Yeah, they really didn't have much they, evidence they on have, Morgan at all. Right. And Hannah may be a little stronger because they have him on videotape. Right. But there's no mention of DNA within Hannah. No. So I can see where they were going with the 2005 victim as the primary case. Right. I can see that. That's where you would start anyway. Nevertheless, prosecutors were working to build a case for the murder of both Hannah Graham and Morgan Harrington. Then, in February of 2015, Matthew was charged with the abduction and murder of Hannah Graham. And then three months later, after a lot of public pressure, the DA decided to seek the death penalty. District attorneys said they had gotten more evidence that made them decide to go for the death penalty. And we don't know what that evidence is, do we? We don't. They never released that to the public? Questions were raised about whether Jesse Matthew was responsible for the 2013 abduction and murder of a young woman named Alexis Murphy. But a man named Randy Taylor had already been convicted of this crime. They did do some scientific testing to make sure that Matthew wasn't the one, and this was actually at the urging of Randy Taylor's attorney. But, oh, I can imagine. Yeah, but it cleared Matthew of that murder. It's a shame for Randy. Probably a good thing. Randy I, I, looks pretty scary. I guess he would. Randy's a murderer. Yeah. 
So Matthew pleaded not guilty to the rape and attempted murder of the 2005 rape victim. This woman wanted to remain anonymous and only went by the initials RG. She's Asian, totally different culture. She had moved back to Asia, and to testify at trial, she would have to travel a long distance, and she was very hesitant to testify. Her privacy was very important to her. Also, she was nervous to see him in court and having to relive the trauma of what was undoubtedly the worst night of her life. I'm sure she was. I mean, I really give her a lot of credit, because it, it couldn't have been an easy thing to do. It must have been so difficult to do that. Yeah. Just to make that trip for it is is really yeah. something I, I mean, think. It's, it's a hell of a long trip, and all you're thinking about is what's going to happen at the end of the trip. Right. You know, holy right. cow. And it's something she didn't want people to know. So must have been hard for her to get away from her family. He, she didn't want them to know. I'm not sure what part of Asia she was from, but seems like it was kind of a repressed culture Well, as far as rape goes. It's not something that's probably spoken about openly. Right, right. The composite sketch made with R.G. was a problem for the prosecution. The attack happened in the dark, and she was very traumatized. Besides, the defense claimed that the sketch didn't look at all like him. What did you think of the sketch? I thought it resembled him. And, and they, they showed, when they are doing the trial, they, they had the victim's sketch on one side, a photograph of Jesse on the other side, and they sort of combined them in the middle, and it was him. Yeah. I guess part of it was that he had short hair in 2005. Yeah. So the dreads weren't there, but as far as facial structure... The facial structure and facial features match pretty well. Yeah, but I could see probably not convicting someone just on her IDing of him. Because, you know, eyewitness testimony is often flawed. Well, but don't forget the DNA under her fingernails. Well, yes, I'm saying if it was just her testimony, oh. I'd have trouble. Yeah. But supporting the DNA, absolutely. Yes. I have no problem with that at all. No, I don't either. So it was June of 2015 when R.G. traveled from her home in Asia to Fairfax, Virginia for Matthew's trial. Because this was connected to the Hannah Graham and Morgan Harrington cases, of course, the trial got an enormous amount of media attention. And not just locally, but all over the country. Yeah, this is big news. Now, cameras weren't allowed, but sketches were. So we had our sketches of what was going on. And now these sketches don't look anything like the people. I guess it doesn't matter, but they don't. Well, a lot of them, you don't even see facial features. That's true. They're more like an artistic rendering of the activity. Reporters who were there for the trial said that R.G. never looked at Matthew, but that he was staring at her throughout the testimony. So was this an attempt to intimidate her? I don't know. Kind of a creepy thought that he was staring at her like that. Again, I think she's very brave. She was. So she talked a little bit about what happened that night, of course, explained the events. Yeah, she said that her attacker picked her up from behind, just like a little baby. Then she said he put her down on the ground and sat on her legs. Now, she was tiny. She's a small woman. He's a pretty he's, big guy. He's a big guy. Yep. She's screaming and yelling as he was beating her. She said she was punching him and trying to kick her legs. He sealed her nose and mouth with his hand and he choked her. He was pulling down her pants as she struggled, and he said to her, I will kill you if you scream again. I'll twist your neck. Let me do this, and I'll let you go. Ugh. Yeah. He dragged her into a ditch, and then 
ran off after uh, the headlights of the car shone on him. So there's a good chance she was going to be killed. I mean, considering what he did later. And she made a very good witness. This was an educated woman, well-spoken. Mark Castro, the man who had found her, also testified. And he said he found her confused and covered in blood. He got a neighbor there to call 911, and he stayed with her until the ambulance arrived to take her to the hospital. The way he described her condition was very important to the case. And she looked to him like she was close to death. So I think this was crucial to show actually what a brutal attack it had been. Right. Not just a brutal attack, but the shape that the victim was in. Right. So probably more than a sexual assault and rape, but an attempted murder. Yes. So the strongest physical evidence was the DNA from R.G.'s fingernails, which matched Matthew's. Absolutely. I mean, that convinces me right there. Yeah, especially when it turned out the odds for it not being him were one in seven billion. Billion with a B. Those are good numbers. So that's a pretty clear number, bigger than the world's population. I feel pretty comfortable with that. So the prosecution rested, and the defense asked for a brief recess. This recess lasted hours. Then Jesse's family was brought in in the back of the courtroom. His mother was crying. So the defense had decided not to put up a defense. They had been working with the prosecution to put together an Alford plea, which we've discussed before. Why don't you refresh people's memories? <laughs> okay, well, an Alford plea is, uh, in United States law, it's a guilty plea in criminal court where the defendant in a criminal case doesn't admit that they did the criminal act and asserts his innocence. So in entering an Alford plea, the defendant admits that the evidence the prosecution has would be likely to persuade a judge or jury to find the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So you're basically not saying you did it, but you're saying that you know that you will probably be convicted. But you're going to get convicted, right. And this is what Michael Peterson ended up doing yeah. in the staircase case. So the Alford plea. I don't know about the Alford plea. Well. I guess it's a way to get justice. Well, in this case, anyway, it was a pretty shocking development. But the end result did satisfy the prosecution because Jesse was given three life sentences. Yeah, the only thing he really gained from this plea was that he didn't have to admit to what he did. So he didn't have to sit there with his parents and say, I killed, I tried to kill this woman, I raped this woman. Right. right. Then on May 5th, 2015, prosecutors announced that Matthew would be charged with capital murder for the death of Hannah Graham. The increased charge of capital murder meant that Matthew could have faced the death penalty if he was convicted. And the trial date was set for July 2016. Then, a few months later, on September 15, 2015, Jesse Matthew was formally charged with first-degree murder and abduction with intent to defile in the murder of Morgan Harrington. And this trial was scheduled for October of 2016. Right, but then in March 2016... In a letter to the news media, prosecutors said that Matthew would plead guilty to the murders of Hannah Graham and Morgan Harrington. Pled guilty. He didn't take the Alford plea. Right. Well, they hadn't gone to court anyway. I don't know if he had the option for the Alford plea. Yeah. So he got four additional life terms. Wow. Right? So he's got seven life terms. That's a lot. That's a lot. So he will be spending his life in prison, which is about the best we can hope for. He's not on the loose, and he'll never be outside of prison. And then the one other bright thing, hopefully, is the beginning of the Help Save the Next Girl, which we talked about earlier. 
So this is a nonprofit organization that began as a movement to spread information and promote personal safety. And it was founded by Dan and Jill Harrington, Morgan's parents. With support from the community, Help Save the Next Girl has really grown into a national team. There's a collegiate chapter at Virginia Tech and a Maryland high school chapter at Walkersville High School. And there are, if you work for a school or a college, you can opt in to have your own chapter, which I think is a great idea. That's a great idea. So what do they do exactly? They work with groups who focus on safety and violence prevention, and they've also participated in Take Back the Night rallies across Virginia, which also bring awareness to women's issues on campuses. And then recently they branched out to the younger demographic with the Girl Scouts in Virginia. And they also keep a really strong social media presence. They gather and share information through Facebook and Twitter, and they utilize a network of followers to put out timely posts to reach a lot of people. Well, that's what you want. The more people, the more aware. So they utilize a whole network of followers to put out timely posts to reach this large number of people, helping create what they would call a zone of safety. Primary focus is to spread safety information and prevent future crimes against young women. This can be accomplished through maintaining vigilance and personal awareness. The message is that as a community, we must know our neighbors and be responsible for one another. Well, I agree with that. Absolutely. And Dan and Jill Harrington also support several other projects to honor Morgan. Um, they have a medical school scholarship, and you can learn more about all that at findmorgan.com. She was really a smart, beautiful girl, but more than that, she was a person. And she just kind of represents so many women that have died in horrible cases like this. I mean, it's just not about her, of course. It's about all the victims that she represents. And what her parents really want to do is decrease the anguish and confusion that take over in a victim's family and be as supportive as they can. So I think there are some other missing women, too, that they are wondering if Jesse Matthew was responsible for killing. I'll bet he is. Yeah, you think so? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anything else to say about these cases? Tough ones to do. Well, I'd just like to remind everybody about Freshly, the new way to get dinner on the table in no time. Their chefs cook and deliver delicious, freshly prepared meals so you can eat healthier without any of the work. Each meal is made to order just for you. With a rotating weekly menu of more than 30 options made with high-quality ingredients, there's always something new, all-natural, and nutritious to try. Order Freshly today and see what it's like to put zero effort into making dinner. Go to Freshly.com forward slash brewery to get $20 off your first six dinners. So I just have a few updates on what's going on at Tie Grabber Podcast before we get to our feedback. First, if you really like listening to True Crime Brewery and you've run out of episodes, I'd like to remind you that you can always join Team Tie Grabber. You give a small amount of financial support and you get access to members-only full-length episodes while helping to support the podcast. On our website, tiegrabber.com, you can sign up to have access to our members-only episodes and you choose how much you want to pay, $3 or $5 a month. We have about 20 episodes now that are available and we put out a new one every month. Over the past year, we've released some members-only episodes on Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman murders, the Diane Downs case, the murders of the Grimes sisters, the Craigslist killer Philip Markoff, and many more really fascinating cases. In March, we covered Amish serial killer Eli Stutzman and the death of his son Danny, also known as Little Boy Blue. 
In April, we're covering the torture and murder of 19-year-old Colleen Slemmer by Krista Pike. This crime is sometimes referred to as the Job Corps killing. Krista is still on death row, the only woman actually on death row in the state of Tennessee. And we've recorded that one, so it should be out actually. When you sign up for Tie Grabber, you get access to all of those episodes, and we send you a thank you package. If you're a $5 a month subscriber, you're going to receive one of our True Crime Brewery Snifters. Those are Dick's go-to glass for most of the beers he reviews on the show, plus a sticker, some coasters, uh, whatever swag I have around the studio. If you contribute $3 a month, you also get a sticker and a magnet, plus you get the True Crime Brewery credit card-sized bottle opener, which is really handy with the summer coming up because you put it in your pocket, you grab a six-pack, and that's all you really need to be at the beach. Maybe a little sunscreen, a towel. Maybe Is that a, it? a koozie to hide the bottle so that you don't get caught drinking alcohol on the beach. Oh, that's right. You're not allowed to do that, are you? Not at our beaches. <laughs> there are probably plenty of beaches where you can get away with that. One last reminder, we're going to be at CrimeCon in Nashville from May 4th to May 6th. It's coming right up, and we're really excited about it. So we're hoping that some of our listeners will be able to make it so we can go out and drink some beers. Dick's been looking into some nice pubs around there for us to visit. If you can get the time to join us, you can get 10% off your tickets by using promo code TCBREWERY. You can sign up at CrimeCon.com and use TCBREWERY to get your discount. So now, feedback, Dick, you get started. I'm leading off. So I have a case suggestion from Tina. She starts out by saying, Hi, Jill and Dick. I love your podcast. Can't wait until Tuesday every week so I can hear the new one. That's a super nice thing to say. Thank you, Tina. Here's her case suggestion. It's the murder of Ron Presba in Georgetown, California. His burned body was found in his car off the side of a cliff, but it was determined that it was not an accident. Ron had been murdered before his car went off the road. There are lots of twists and turns. It's a fascinating case, and I would love to hear your take on it. So Patricia Presba, I guess that's his wife, Good guess. was arrested by Salt Lake City Police after state police spotted her friend's car in the parking lot of a Motel 6. Classy. <laughs> the car's owner was 21-year-old Jaime Ramos. He was also arrested. So they were interviewed by detectives in Salt Lake City. Ronald Presba had been reported missing by his wife, El Dorado County Authorities found his burned-out vehicle at the bottom of a ravine hours after while responding to a wildfire. They found burnt human remains in the passenger seat, but an autopsy and dental records failed to positively identify the body. Remains were sent to a state lab for DNA testing. case took a turn when a friend reported Patricia Presby missing from her home in Georgetown, which is a small town in the foothills northeast of Sacramento. So El Dorado County authorities found her front door ajar and what appeared to be blood inside her home. This is also a Dateline episode called The Seduction, so it looks like Patricia and her lover, Mr. Ramos, killed her husband and then took off. Her much younger lover. I was noticing that. She's mid-40s, he's 21. Yeah, so that's a juicy story. Yeah, I think we should do that one. I think we might do that one. We like those May-December ones. And actually, I think Keith was the one who did it on Dateline, so that gives it even more points, in my opinion. Okay. Brittany T. wrote to us with a case suggestion. Rebecca Zalhau, 32, was discovered dead on July 13, 2011, at a beach house in Coronado, California, owned by her live-in boyfriend, 
Medicus Pharmaceutical CEO Jonah Shackney. She was gagged with a blue long-sleeved t-shirt wrapped around her head with the sleeves double-knotted and stuffed into her mouth. There was also what appeared to be tape residue on her legs. Her death occurred just two days after Shackney's six-year-old son took a fatal fall from a staircase banister in the same beach house. Rebecca was the only adult present at the time of his fall. San Diego Sheriff Bill Gore announced in September 2011 that her death was a suicide while the child's death was an accident, and that neither was the result of foul play. Adam Shackney stated that he found Rebecca nude, hanging from a balcony, with her wrists and ankles bound, at roughly 6.45 a.m. on the morning of July 13th. Members of Rebecca's family sued Adam for $10 million, disputing his contention that her death was a suicide, and they were awarded $5 million. Wouldn't you think it'd be difficult to commit suicide with your ankles and wrists bound? Well, there was just tape residue on her legs. They weren't actually still bound when they found her. But she was naked with something stuffed in her mouth, so that makes no sense. It doesn't. But Courtney T. also recommended this case. And Courtney wrote, I recently jumped into the world of podcasts, and yours have been the first that I've loved. I listen to TCB pretty much all day long and can't get enough. I had a suggestion for a crime that occurred here in San Diego, California. It recently came back in the news because of a civil trial that took place that found the suspect, Jonah Shackney, responsible for the death of the victim, Rebecca Zahau, despite police all saying it was a suicide. This is the Spreckles Mansion mystery. It's also sparked a lot of rumor about police corruption in our area, and most people that I've talked to about the case in passing seem to feel that this was a murder, as the way her body was found would be nearly impossible for her to have ended up that way on her own. Throw in the fact that her boyfriend's young son died shortly before Rebecca was found hanging in the house, and something just seems fishy. I'd love to hear what your takes are on the case, especially in regards to the son's history with seizures and how that might have played into his passing. And if you also feel that this may tie in somehow to the suicide or possible murder of Rebecca. So, well, that's a juicy one. Just off the top of my head, it seems like there has to be some kind of connection. Yeah, reading these two suggestions or these two pieces that were written, the, the thing that pops up first is that the uh, the guy, the father held her responsible for his son's death and killed her. That's possible. I also thought maybe the guy killed his son and she knew about it. Possible. We don't know enough to say. I mean, we're just throwing these things out there. But If he had a seizure disorder, that might have played a role. Sure. Maybe he had a seizure and fell. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of good, interesting things to investigate. I'm going to assign this to you to research this and see if we want to do it because of the uh, seizure aspect. See what you think. Okay. This is going to be Dick's case to look into. I'll take care of that. Okay. (laughs) We have another case recommendation. You want to read that one? This is from Philip, who says, I love your podcast and have been listening for a couple of years. So he's been with us right from the beginning. An idea for a future episode is the killing of Katie Poirier by Donald Blom in north central Minnesota in 1999. The take on this is that in May of 1999, 19-year-old Katie Elizabeth Poirier went missing from the DJ's Expressway Conoco convenience store in Moose Lake, Minnesota. She worked there as a night clerk. It just happened that a passerby noticed there was no attendant present in the store and reported the odd incident. Then there was a grainy black-and-white surveillance video showing Katie being forced out of the store around 11.40 p.m. 
by a man wearing jeans, a backwards baseball cap, and a New York Yankees baseball jersey. This man's hand was at the back of her neck, and from the way she touched her throat, there might have been a cord wrapped around her neck. So the video was sent to imaging specialists at NASA. Well, yeah, they're good at enhancing things. Yeah. So they were able to enhance the image so that more details of the suspect could be seen. Witnesses also reported that they had seen a black pickup truck circling the area around the convenience store that evening. And one of the witnesses gave a partial license plate number. Another witness reported seeing a suspicious man leering at female passersby outside of the local sandwich shop earlier that night. The suspect was allegedly driving the same black pickup truck that other witnesses had described. Based on this and three other witness statements, a composite sketch of the abductor was broadcast on the local media. So Donald Blum was checked after Katie's disappearance since he had a pickup truck registered to his name with a license plate number matching the partial number provided by the witness. Blom's former co-worker called the police tip line. He stated that Donald Hutchison looks similar to the man in the composite sketch provided by the police. He's living under a different name? I guess. He'd been absent on the day following Katie's disappearance. Recently had cut his hair and stopped driving his black pickup. Ah. And then he, shortly after that, he had suddenly quit his job as the janitor without any notice. Well, that sure sounds suspicious. So that's suspicious. So we've got a fake name. Yeah. And no longer driving his truck and quitting his job. Right. Plus the plate matched, what, three letters and a number? Three, or three, three number? letters and a number, I think. Yeah. So that's pretty. That's a pretty good match. Yeah. With the description, the odds would be pretty good, I would think. Sounds interesting. Yeah. All right. Tara in Canada with a case suggestion. I've been listening to you from the very beginning, and you've grown on me to become one of my favorite podcasts. We do grow on people. <laughs> well, if, if you listen to some of our early ones, uh, yeah, yeah. Th there's nowhere to go but up. That's true. <laughs> so she says, from the start, I have thought one case in particular would be perfect for you to cover, and I don't know why I haven't taken the time to suggest it sooner, because you must have a very long list to choose from. I have never heard another podcast cover this case. Although it's an intriguing one that got a fair amount of coverage at the time it happened, it's the murder of Julie Jensen and the trial of her husband, Mark, who was accused of poisoning Julie with antifreeze in order to be with his mistress, who he later married and who ended up raising his children when he went to prison for murder. It's the case where Julie's letter from the grave was used as evidence, as she had written about her suspicions about her husband in a letter outlining his increasingly strange and abusive behavior toward her. I think you two would be perfect to discuss this case, and I hope to hear it someday on your podcast. Keep doing what you both do, and thanks for the great amount of detailed research that goes into each show you produce. Thanks, Tara. So prosecutors contended that Mark Jensen poisoned his wife, Julie, who was 40, with antifreeze and then suffocated her inside the garage of their home, in Pleasant Prairie on December 3, 1998. The defense argued that Julie was a depressed woman who killed herself and framed her husband. She had seen a therapist at least three times for depression and was aware of her husband's extramarital affair with a co-worker. Mark Jensen later married the co-worker, and she took custody of the two sons after Mark's imprisonment. Evidence was introduced showing that Mark had discussed poisoning his wife with co-workers and a jailhouse associate, as well as searching on the internet for information 
relating to spousal murder and poisoning techniques. The letters used by the prosecutors was controversial because such evidence has been blocked from court for years by strict hearsay rules, but the Wisconsin Supreme Court created a hearsay exception that permitted the use of Julie Jensen's letter and statements as a dying declaration and as evidence of her state of mind at the time of her death. The letter was the critical factor in the trial that ended on February 26, 2008, when the jury found Jensen, 48, guilty of his wife's murder after more than 30 hours of deliberations. Now, we did hear about a case similar to this. It wasn't the same case, though, because it was a woman that shot herself. Do you remember? Maybe it was on forensic files where he had hit her in the head in the barn once right. earlier. Yeah. It was, and she wrote it was, a letter. It was a show we watched. I think it was forensic files. They allowed it in the testimony. Yeah, she left a letter in her hutch in her dining room and told her sister about it. Very similar. It is. Yeah. All right, there's one more. You want to read the last one? One more from Kimberly P. In Trail Creek, Indiana, Hilma Marie Witte had her sons kill their father and then kill and dismember their grandmother. They attempted to dismember Grandma, well, get rid of her, in a garbage disposal and food processor. That now, is really awful. And those aren't real effective ways of doing what they were aiming to do. Oh, my God. That's so gross. Hilma was on Deadly Women on an episode titled Mommy's Little Helper. The son, Eric, was on Evil Lives Here. Oh, I love that show. The house the grandmother lived in is just a few blocks from where I live. Scary stuff. I have just started listening to your podcasts and have lost sleep binging on them. Thank you, Kimberly. Did you notice I've been leaving some of the compliments in our letters now you instead have. of cutting it out? I think that's a real sign of my self-esteem is a little bit better. Okay. <laughs> that I can listen to I'm, it without cringing. I'm proud of you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's just an interesting one. It's really good. Yeah, it sounds like a kind of a gross one, though, doesn't it? Well, yeah. A food processor? Right. Evil Lives Here, though. That's an interesting show. There have been yeah. some great true crime shows out lately. I love that one. And you know what I'm super into now is the Marsha Clark on the A&E Network. Marsha Clark, and then it's followed up by Dan Abrams and Nancy Abrams Grace. Followed by and Grace. And they do the same case. Yeah. I love it. And they have, I love the chemistry between the two, or <laughs> purported lack thereof. I think they have fun doing that. Well, you know, I never liked Nancy Grace, her show or anything. But I, I kind of like her in this because I like the way they banter back and forth. It kind of reminds me of us, except we're much nicer to each other. Yeah, we are for sure. But she is absolutely a character. And the first two they did, they did the Casey Anthony case, and then they did Drew Peterson. Those were fascinating. The last one they did this week, I think, was uh, Gary Condit, and that wasn't as great. But coming up, they have uh, Robert Blake. And we haven't done an episode on Robert Blake, so if that's an interesting case, I don't know that much about it. We might end up doing an episode about that one. Yeah, I vaguely remember that case. Yeah. Me too. And, I don't remember much. And I think he got acquitted, didn't he? I don't know. We'll I don't really to, know much about we'll it. Have to watch it. Yeah. Yeah, but I would definitely recommend if you like watching true crime shows. I didn't know A&E had stuff like this, but those are great. I think they're on Thursday nights here, but who knows where they are, what time they're on at different places. Yeah. Yeah. We'll check it out. Yeah. But anyway, we're going to wrap it up for today. Thank you, everyone, for listening, for your support, for everything you do. We appreciate it. We certainly more, more do. More than you could ever imagine. That's right. And we will see you at the quiet end. Join us. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>